been a couple of weeks since I've been up here. I am Lou. I am the, the lead path, teaching pastor here. Wonderful having brothers and other pastor elders, interns uh, that can teach and preach the word and uh, give me some rest. So um, we are back in the gospel according to Luke. So go there with me in your Bibles. Bibles in the back, open the Bible apps. Um, certainly your iPads or iPhones or droids if you have one. Try not to answer any emails or do Amazon shopping, but uh, check and see if your package was delivered. It'd be good if you could just stick with us. And Luke, uh, the good doctor, Dr. Luke, is writing a, a, a Holy Spirit-inspired orderly account, uh, including gathering information from eyewitnesses of life ministry and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been a while since we've been in this book, six weeks, so I'm going to do a short recap not that short, actually. If you could lower me down a little bit, uh, Chris, you're going back there, Reynolds. Um, so we're going to spend a few minutes, kind of like a three-part sermon. We're going to spend a third of our time doing a short recap of the nine chapters we've been in, and then we'll look at our text under two, uh, that Joe Mixie read, under two headings. So the first thing I want to remind you is that we're calling this series Mission to the World. Mission to the world, the reason we're calling it Mission to the World is because we see in this gospel account the, the love of God, the compassion of God, the mercy of God, and, and the love and grace extended to all kinds of people, the marginalized, the hated, the rejected. You see Jesus making an impact on those kinds of folks, and that should speak volumes to us today as we look to share the gospel and love people in our day. Um, the first few chapters of chapter 1 and 2, Luke uh, gives us the account and descriptions of the announcement and birth of Jesus. It's very Christological, pointing to who, who Jesus is. Even his name means God is Savior. Um, he talks about Jesus being the Son of the Most High God, uh, the, the Horn of Salvation, the Deliverer, the, the, the Redeemer, the Covenantal Promised One, the, the Forgiver of Sins, Light to those in the darkness. He is Christ the Lord, the Messiah, the Ultimate Anointed One, as I said. Consolation and Glory of Israel. He's is Light to the Gentiles. All that in the first chapter or two. We get to chapter two, though, verse 41. We take, uh, Jesus takes us with his mom and dad. They go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. And he's left behind, if you remember the story. Three days go by, and his parents show back up in Jerusalem looking for Jesus. They find him in the temple. He's talking and, and conversations and teaching and listening, asking questions with the leaders. Everyone's amazed at his understanding. And Jesus says to Mary, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So very important. You see the description of Jesus, first two chapters. You see at the end of chapter two, Jesus at the temple saying, I must be in my father's house. So by the time he's 12 years old, he already recognizes his unique relationship with God the Father. The expression that my father is not like when we call God our father. We are a child of God. He is the son of the same nature. Same nature. In chapter 3, we see Jesus baptized. Uh, we see the triune God. We see the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove. The Father speaks from heaven. You are my beloved son. There's that relationship again. With you, I am well pleased. And then Luke, being carried along by the Spirit, stops the narrative in the middle of this and gives us a, a detailed description of the genealogy of Jesus. In chapter 3, you say, why is that there? Well, you notice it begins with Jesus, chapter 3, verse 38, or 35 and following. It begins with Jesus, and it's traced down until we get to Adam, the Son of God, chapter 3, verse 38. 
Now, in Matthew's gospel, we have the genealogy of Jesus. It goes back to Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish people, because Matthew's writing to a mostly Jewish audience. But Luke and Matthew both trace Jesus' ancestry to Abraham in a covenant with Abraham, to David in a covenant with King David. But Luke goes all the way back to Adam because Luke wants to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah for the whole human race. Another reason we call this the mission to the world. And then in chapter 4, this second Adam, like the first Adam, Jesus is driven into the wilderness, tempted by Satan. But unlike the first Adam, Genesis 3, who failed and sinned and was cursed, Jesus doesn't fail. He obeys the Father, passed the test in the wilderness. And now, as a truly man, fully human, sinless life, he's able to make atonement. He's able to, uh, to become the curse for us. Adam failed. Jesus passed. And that's how we can receive life and forgiveness, because of the perfect Jesus Christ, truly man, truly God. One of the things Luke has been pointing out to us also is that he is the king of kings. He has come to inaugurate his kingdom. Jesus said when he came preaching, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He came to inaugurate the kingdom. It is the already of the kingdom because Jesus has come and it's the not yet of the kingdom of the kingdom that will come in its fullness. Jesus began his ministry we've been following in the region of Galilee, north of Jerusalem, particularly in his hometown of Nazareth. In chapter 4, he's handed a scroll, and he opens up to Isaiah 61. And Jesus reads the scroll in the synagogue. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. The ultimate anointment, that means the word Christ, and he, to preach the good news of the kingdom to the poor, to the broken, to the marginalized. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blinds, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I'm here to proclaim, verse 19 of chapter 4, the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolls up the scroll, hands it to the attendants, looks out at everyone. Everyone's looking at him. It's quiet. And Jesus says these words. Today, this prophecy, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I'm he. I'm that king. And he began his ministry, we said, over and over again, we've seen this, declaring and demonstrating this kingly power over, uh, this kingly power and authority over all things. He showed his authority as he taught the word of God, his authority and power over evil spirits, over sickness, over creation itself, over defilement as he heals, over forgiveness of sins. He even shown his authority and power as the king over the Sabbath. And throughout his preaching and teaching and ministry, he's been calling people. Remember, he did with Levi in chapter 5. He's been calling people what? To repent, to, to turn from their sins and to follow him. It's a call to discipleship. That's exactly what he's doing this morning. And we're going to see this in the text. Calling you, calling me, calling everyone everywhere to repent. That means to turn from your sin and to follow Jesus. In chapter 6, he calls his apostles, 12 of them, begins to prepare them to, to, to form this new community, to take his mission to, to the, uh, of redemption to the world, sending them out as well. We see that in chapter 6 in a, in, a, in a teaching and healing expedition. And then he gathers his 
apostles and some of his disciples. And he begins to say, this is what it looks like to follow me. This is how I want you to act, to say, and to do as you follow me. Things like what it means to be blessed of God. We saw that in the Beatitudes. Other things like loving your enemies and not falsely judging others, chapter 6. And at the end of chapter 6, he talks about good fruit and good trees, building your house on the rock. We saw that. In chapter 7, Jesus heals a Roman centurion. First real clear healing of a non-Jew. He's come to save and redeem all people. Remember we said this healing ministry, this miracle ministry of Jesus were signs, right? They, they were signs. It was a signpost. It was, it, was, it was authenticating and validating, authenticating and validating his claim to have ultimate authority, to have ultimate power over all creation as the king of kings. It wasn't a just magician doing you know, magician acts, tricks. I'm the king. I'm Lord. I'm reigning, ruling king. And this is how I am going to show you, and this is what the kingdom is going to look like. Healing, and, 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 and healing defilement, and filth, and, and sins. And Over the past couple, maybe two months, as we were in this book, we saw that his disciples were growing. We saw that his uh, uh, crowds were growing. Disciples were growing, crowd growing. We saw opposition mounting, and people were then asking this question, if you remember been a while, but people were asking this question, who is this guy? Who, who is this Jesus? He forgives sins of a paralytic man. He forgives the sins of a sinful woman of the night. And the religious people asking, who is this who, who, who can forgive sins? That, that's blasphemy if it were not God in the flesh, and it would be. But Jesus is God in the flesh, and he has authority over Forgiveness of sins. Even his disciples, when, when they were in the boat and they watched Jesus rebuke the wind and the seas, they said in chapter 8, Who is this that he commands the wind and the water and they obey him? And this question lingered for chapters, several chapters. And by the time we get to chapter 9, it was Herod who murdered John. said, I, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And right after that, as we got into chapter 9, and this question of who is this Jesus, we see the Apostle Peter's famous confession. Jesus says, who do the crowds say that I am? And some people say, ah, John the Baptist, maybe, risen from the dead. Elijah, one of the prophets. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, leader of the crowd, you are the Christ. You're the Christ of God. Jesus says, you know what, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. You didn't get that on your own. That was good, though. But my Father in heaven gave it to you. And then Jesus says, turn to chapter 9 with me. Jesus, using his favorite title in chapter 9, verse 22, said, The Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and killed and on the third day be raised again. I'm the Christ. I'm the King. I'm the ruler. I'm the one who will establish an eternal kingdom. But first, I must suffer and be rejected and killed on the third day. And what Jesus does, he brings those two things together. The Christ, the King, the ruler, the sovereign one, the one who will establish a kingdom, and the suffering servant, the mysterious one that Isaiah wrote about. He brings them together, and we know what happens to Peter. His, boom, his head blows up. Never, Lord. May it never be. 
Jesus turns to him and says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You're just looking at what you want, not what needs to be done. So yeah, I'm the Messiah. I'm the promised king. I'm the one who is the ultimate anointed one. I'm the one who will, who will bring a kingdom without sin, injustice, death, and sickness. But first, it will come through suffering, rejection, crucifixion, and resurrection. And then Jesus tells his 12 apostles, disciples, probably in a small crowd as well, not just his apostles, in chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone would come after me, see, he's pressing in what it means to follow Jesus. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me, right? Be lost in me. Get your personhood from me. A call to trust and to follow Jesus, verse 23. Denying your purpose, your plans, and accepting his plans, his purpose for your life. Verse 24. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel, which Matthew adds, will save it. Verse 25. But what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? Well, we know it, right? You gain the whole world, forfeit your soul. What do you gain? Nothing. You profit a man if he gains Christ, everything. That's the call of discipleship. A call to be, to be willing to suffer as Christ suffered, to suffer our lives to Christ, to be willing to surrender earthly gain and to look to King Jesus. For whoever is ashamed, verse 26, of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes. He's coming in his glory. Not finite glory that we have, Infinite glory. Look what it says. And the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Now remember, we said when Jesus uses the title, Son of Man, many times he's referring himself to Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. Where Daniel speaks about the one who's coming like the Son of Man. God himself coming into human history. From the presence of the Ancient One, from the Father, who will have all authority, will have all glory and, and sovereign power. And every person, every nation, every tongue, every language will worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom will never be destroyed. Jesus says, I'm that son of man. And that day will come. As we move towards the end of chapter 9, verse 28, um, we see the glorious transfiguration. Where I believe Jesus partially fulfilled these words as he, he reveals his intrinsic glory. And this first section closes, and the disciples, notice with me, the disciples are still struggling to comprehend who is this Jesus. We see that in verses 37 through 50, where they're, they're lacking faith. They're, they're lacking the ability, the, the ability to understand the cross. They're lacking the ability to understand what's going to happen. Arguing, if you notice, in those verses, who's the greatest among them? And that chap or that part of, of the section, this first section of Luke, ends with them lacking wisdom of what to do with outsiders that are not in their inner circle. Look at verse 49. John answered, Master, <laughs> this is after arguing, who's greater? We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Not that he does not follow you, he doesn't follow us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who's not against you is 
for you. So it appears um, that the, the same selfish pride that, that drove the disciples to argue about who's great, right, it, it works itself out so that they want to keep the outsiders out <laughs> as they continue in their mission, unempowered, not part of us. The main thing really is not so much whether they're with them, really the issue is, are they with Jesus? That's the real question. And Jesus clearly not saying whatever you think about me is okay or whatever you do in my name is okay. There are false gospels. There, there are false messages. He's referring to those who are laboring for Christ who will not work the way they work. Don't wear the same uniform. They don't fight in the same regiment. Jesus said, man, we need to be kingdom-minded. We should recognize that making known the name of, making known the name of Jesus is more important than who makes it known. Making known the name of Jesus is more important than who makes it known. So with that in place, we can see clearly that the context of our text this morning continues with this misunderstanding of the disciples. They still don't got it. They still don't get it. The misunderstanding of the disciples and the continued instruction of Christ concerning what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. That takes us to the text. Two points. Counting the cost. How to handle gospel rejection. It's got to teach them. And then turns to them and says, this is what it means. I keep telling you, but let's do it again. What does it mean to follow Jesus? So before we judge, let's relate. We need to hear it over and over and over again as well. So how to handle gospel rejection. What we see in our text here in verse 51 and following, Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. And the disciples want to set fire to Samaria. Verse 51. When the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face like a flint, Isaiah tells us, to go to Jerusalem. Now, he'll, he'll be back in Galilee, but this is a turning point. Luke is telling us the divine clock is ticking. The divine calendar is moving forward, ahead, in the response of Jesus where he's headed to fulfill God's plan. Jesus is nearing the consummation of his saving work in his suffering, in his rejection, in his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. And what we see here is no matter how much the disciples are still not getting it, it does not. It never will. Sway the Lord Jesus from full obedience to the Father's plan to redeem a people for himself. If it were me, I'd be like, y'all ain't worth it. I'm not going. But not Jesus. In fact, the expression, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, indicates that this resolution, a, a complete determination of purpose. Remember earlier, Moses and Elijah at the Mount Transfiguration We're talking with Jesus about his exodus, his departure from the earth, the cross. It says, we're talking of his exodus, which he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. Family, Jesus did not fall prey to some unknown plot or some unfortunate accident being at the wrong place at the wrong time. No. He purposely went to the cross where he would forgive his enemies, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do, turn to a dying thief and promise him paradise and make atonement for sinners for you and me. 
Then he would be raised from the dead, ascend to heaven, taken to glory. He was set, face set toward Jerusalem, looking ahead to the cross, to the crown, and to the glory. That's what Luke is telling us. And once he set his face in that direction, we'll see as we continue this book, he never looked back. Nothing would deter him, nothing would detract him from doing what he was called to do, what he was sent to do. Salvation, atonement, redemption, and glory was the goal as he would receive and go back to the place of glory with his father. Keep that in mind as we move forward in this text, as we see Jesus sending his disciples toward Samaria, that Jesus is not going back home to start over. He set his face to Jerusalem. Now, just, you don't, just in case you don't know, when, they, when Jesus sends them to Samaria, that, that raises all kinds of problems. There's a century-old hatred between the Samaritans and the Jewish people, okay? You may not know that. It began when the Samaritans uh, began intermarrying and having children with their Assyrian conquerors. And the Jewish, therefore, considered them to be half-breeds, or religious apostates. And the Samaritans didn't like to be called that. And we're calling the Jews apostate, even though they were full-blooded Jewish people. In fact, the Samaritans set up their own place of worship. You know, Jerusalem, you would go to Mount what, Zion in Jerusalem to worship at the temple. But the Samaritans set up Mount Gerizim. That's what, when you read the woman at the well, that's what she was talking about. That was the place of worship. Not in Mount Zion. You come to Mount Gerizim. They even distributed their own Pentateuch, the five books of the Moses, established a rival liturgy. There was a lot of problems between the two. In fact, from what I read this week, the Jewish people responded by cursing the Samaritans in the synagogue, praying daily that they would not <laughs> have eternal life. Not a friendly group. I'm not sure they hated tax collectors more than the Samaritans. Not sure. And Jewish travelers who would travel from Galilee area to Jerusalem uh, either were often harassed as they passed through their, their way from Jerusalem or to Jerusalem, or they would simply go around, take the long way to get around. Um, but here the disciples, think about this for a minute, here the disciples are told, I want you to go into Samaria. Just think if you were one of those guys, the apostles or this crowd. You want me to go where? I want you to go into Samaria. Hmm, okay. I can only imagine what's going through their minds at the moment. Like, okay, well, there's going to be some hostility. There always is. Some difficulty. Definitely some rejection. It's very possible, right? I mean, that, that must have been what they think when he said, go there. Have you ever been in that kind of situation where you're thinking, you know what? This, this, could, this could be problematic if I share the gospel in this crowd. But God has sent me to do it in a loving way. We'll talk about that. God said, no, I want you to go. I want you to represent. I want you to love. I want you to care. I want you to share me with them. So Jesus sends them for preparation, probably lodging, maybe food as they are on their way. Um, quite certain that many of the towns were small towns. If you see in chapter 10, there's 72 people at least walking with Jesus, or maybe, maybe there's 100 folks. You know, how are you going to a small town of 12, you know, 15, 20 people? Oh, yeah, I got a crowd of 100 coming. You got any food and lodging for us, right? The brand new Chick-fil-A is packed. You can't get in. So they got problems. They can't eat. It says in verse 53 that the Samaritans did not receive him, that's Jesus. Why? Because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Now, it probably means that they knew that Jesus and his crowd, his disciples, apostles, and the crowd, were passing through. They weren't stopping at Mount Gerizim to worship or worship with their liturgy. They were just simply passing through, going to 
Mount Zion, going to Jerusalem to worship. And for that reason and the hostility we talked about, they said, you know what? Beat it. Get lost. We don't want you here. And they rejected the crowd. They weren't going to help. And then James and John. And by the way, if you don't know this, I think it's Mark 3. Their nicknames are the Sons of Thunder. Keep that in mind. They live up to their reputation. Look at verse 54. Lord, they don't want us here. Do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I'm really kind and gracious Christians right there, man. Some loving, patient. Uh, that's the kind of people you want around you. <laughs> Almost all commentators agree that they, they, these, these Jewish men understood the Old Testament, that they were living out Second Kings. You don't have to turn there now, but if you go there, there's an apostate king who went after Elijah. And Elijah called down fire twice from heaven to destroy the company of soldiers. And you know what? It did. Lord, you want us to call down judgment? We'll do it right now. They didn't even ask him to do it. They think they can do it. They can't feed people on the mountain. They can't heal a boy because they lack prayer. But we'll call fire down. Just let us know. White, hot, white, hot fire, fury. The boys, the Zebedee's boys, they want to incinerate. Samaritan. You know, it's funny, in chapter 9, we'll see it again later, Jesus sends his apostles out on mission, giving them power, giving them authority. We saw this early in chapter 9, over demons, curing disease, preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. He says, whatever town you go into and they welcome you, great. But if they don't, shake the dust from their feet, Right? Shake your dust from the feet, a symbol of, of judgment and warning against them. In other words, when you leave the town, shake the dust from your feet. James and John did not want to simply shake the dust of this town from their feet. They wanted to reduce it to dust. Smoke them. Incinerate them. It wasn't that long ago that Jesus sat these men down, and I can only imagine, looked at them in their eyes and said, Hey, guys. Love your enemies. Do good though to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Not send fire down on them. That, you know, the, I can't help but think, but these are a turn and burn crowd. You ever see those signs on the poles? Turn or burn, you know. It's like, you know, you got one shot. Receive Jesus. Not right now. Good. Go to hell. Like, you know, that, these are these two guys. No patience, no kindness, no love at all. And you know what they don't have? I can only imagine. I don't think this is reading into the text. They don't have, at this moment, a deep understanding of the grace of God. What did Jesus do? Verse 55. He turned and rebuked them. Why? It wasn't time for judgment. The day of judgment will come for all of us. It's a time for grace. It's a time for mercy. And for followers of Christ, the day of judgment came on Christ. But God is going to right every wrong. Every sin will be paid for. Either Christ paid for it on the cross, or the person will pay for it in eternal damnation. The text doesn't say, notice, that the Sumerians, what they did by rejecting them was right or, 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 or good or holy. It doesn't say that. Prejudice. Racial superiority, no matter who it is. Hatred toward others is never good. 
but they still had time to repent. And so the attitude and his uncaring disposition was evil. Luke will say a lot, and, and we're going to get into Acts, because he wrote Acts as well. He'll say a lot of positive things, or, or good things, I should say, about Samaritans who come to faith. Well, after the service today, we're going to have a follow-up, a Q&A, from our discussion on biblical um, sexuality and gender. Honestly, it, it's not so much about what the Scriptures teach. We're Bible-believing, authoritative. We believe authority is in Scripture. We know what God-created order is. is we, we believe what the Bible says. It really is about how we treat those who, who reject or rebel against God. Is our attitude, let's throw fiery hot tar from heaven on them and destroy people? Or is it how can, how can we love? How can we open up opportunities? How can we share the love of God and the gospel with them? That's the issue. Yes, of course, we do it without affirming sinful behaviors. But at the same time, lovingly living on mission. You say, Pastor, that's easier said than done. I agree. Especially with all the different nuances, the circumstances, uh, and conditions we find ourselves in. Life can be, you all agree, very complicated. And I've said this many times, I'll say it again. I would rather live in the tension of not running from people, asking God to send fire down from heaven... We're joining them in their sinful behaviors, but rather in the tension, looking for opportunities to engage them in love and the truth of the gospel. And sometimes, honestly, it looks a little different with each of us as we engage and we love one another, we love others. But one thing is sure, we could say that John and James were wrong, that destruction wasn't what God had called them to. No one's questioning their zeal, their concern for the honor of Christ. They even have a Bible verse, 2 Kings. They still got it wrong. Their zeal was not according to knowledge. J.C. Ryle, I know you're doing a book on holiness. Let me tell you what he says. It is possible to have much zeal for Christ and yet to exhibit it in most unholy and unchristian ways. It is possible to mean well and have good intentions and yet to make most grievous mistakes in our actions. It is possible to fancy that we have scripture on our side and to support our conduct by scriptural quotations and yet to commit serious errors. It is clear, he says, as daylight from this and other cases related in the Bible that it is not enough to be zealous and well-meaning. Very grave faults are frequently committed with good intentions. Then he says, from no quarter perhaps has the church received so much injury as from ignorant but well-meaning men, end quote. That's a great quote. Zeal without compassion, scripture truth without grace will not demonstrate the kindness, the mercy, the love and truth of scripture, of the spirit as we speak on his behalf. Those who want to call fire down on others have not really deeply understood and recognized that they themselves deserve the hot wrath, as I do, of God's judgment upon ourselves. But it was Jesus who stepped in the gap, who stood in the place, who took the fiery hot judgment of God upon himself as our substitute. Every Christian. Right? And let me say this before we move on. We may, we may be right about their sinfulness, the culture, the people, the government, the, uh, 
That may be true. But are we responding? Here's a question. Are we responding in a spirit-powered way to demonstrate the kindness of God, to demonstrate the grace of God, to demonstrate the mercy of Christ and the truth of Scripture? Are we responding? Judgment will come. Today's the day of salvation. There's still many people that need to, to say, hey, Jesus loves you. You need to turn from your sin and trust him just like me. I deserve the wrath of God, and Jesus took that wrath, and he died for you too. That's what we need to do. And even those who reject him right now, I don't know if you know that. This may be a surprise to you, but you rejected life, Jesus, all your life until the day he opened your eyes, poured his grace into your life, and revealed to you the beauty of Christ. We're all in rejection of Christ at some point. We all come the same way, and that is through the cross. And we're, and we're reminded that we are to be ambassadors, not judges. Or I should say, commandeers of God's role as judge, right? We love, care, stand on truth, and live on mission. And that's what they do. They, they want to move on. Look what it says. What does it mean to follow? Look at verse 9 again. Three encounters, three disciples. Well, the encounters that Jesus has over these next few verses, uh, 57 and following, uh, they're a little different, but there's one theme that ties them all together. Notice with me the word follow. Three times in just a couple of verses, follow, follow, follow. Each of these encounters teach us something important about counting the cost, understanding what it means to be a Christ follower, okay? Jesus is not saying, do all these things and then I will love you and my grace will be upon you. No, he's saying, because my love and grace is upon you, come and follow me. And this is what it looks like, right? Calling you what, what, it, what it really looks like. Jesus wants you and me and the disciples in that day to be sure that we understand what, what, what we're getting ourselves into. If we, are, if we have received the gift of salvation, the free gift of salvation, if we have embraced a full measure of his grace, then following him means that he is our first priority, okay? Not an add-on, not an enhancement of your life, something you add to your busy schedule, he is Lord, sovereign, reigning, ruler, creator, savior, and everything in our lives must be reoriented around him. Family, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And these conversations, they're not, they're not like the open rejection of the Samaritans, but they are a challenge to not put something or someone ahead of Jesus. The question is, is he our first priority? Is he our first and greatest treasure, our first love, our first commitment? Or is he welcome to be somewhere in that list that we have, just not on top? And we notice in the first disciple that we learn here in chapter, 50, uh, chapter 9, verse 57, we learn from Matthew 8 that he's actually a scribe. Now, Luke doesn't say who he is, but Matthew does. He's a scribe. He's a teacher of the law. He's a, he's a man who studied, taught, interpreted, and transmitted the Mosaic law. Make no mistake about it. He was probably a, somewhat of a powerful leader, all right? And probably had some financial support, security. Um, he knows what it means to be a follower of, of someone as a scribe. And that's why in verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone, a scribe, said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Now, as we look at these three disciples, let me say this now, I think we need to understand that Jesus knows the heart of men, right? We've seen that already. He, he knows what's going on and knows the heart. That's why he responds in each one of these uh, uh, 
stories the way he does. He knows the man's heart. Number two, I think the statement, I will follow you wherever you go, must be taken as a statement that wasn't really, he just blurted it out. I don't know if he really thought it through. And I say that because of the context and the answer Jesus gives him. It's sort of like Peter's response, right, toward the end and the night in which he was betrayed. He tells Jesus, listen, everyone's falling away. Okay, but I won't. You know the story. Wherever you go, I'll go. If you go to prison, I'll go to prison. If you go to death, I'll die with you. We know what happened next. Jesus looks at him and goes, really, Peter? That was good. Sounded great. You didn't think it through. In fact, I tell you, Peter, the rooster's going to crow. This day until you deny three times you even know me. One commentator said, he spoke with so much self-confidence. He's talking about the disciple, not Peter. He's talking about uh, Luke 9. He spoke with so much confidence because he had no inkling of the way of sorrows and death which the Lord would yet follow. And also because he did not realize his own weakness and instability, end quote. I'll follow you wherever you go. Okay. Well, guess what? Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place, nowhere to lay his head. Jesus divested all of his, himself of the glories of heaven to enter into this broken, twisted, sinful, dark world and then at times had no place to lay his head. Homeless. Following Jesus, listen, I'll say this, cannot coexist with the pursuit of comfort and ease. If that's what you want, you can't follow Jesus. Another reason why I hate the prosperity gospel. Hate it. Oh, you're sick? Come to Jesus. Oh, you want health? Come to Jesus. Oh, are you poor? Come to Jesus. He'll make you rich. And then you know what? When it doesn't work, what's the problem? Jesus. Jesus has nothing to offer those whose first priority is, is, is material blessings, security, and comfort. Not even the foxes. He don't even have what the foxes of the fields have, the birds of the air possess. I don't think Jesus is saying you should never be comfortable or have anything, but his answer shows that the followers of Jesus must not suppose or think that following him is some sort of ticket, some sort of way some, to, to this luxurious lifestyle. That's not the true gospel. And the reason, not so much a call to live in some sort of poverty, but a genuine disciple must realize that hardship, rejection, and the reality that this is not our home. That's why I've always said, as you grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, the world should have less attraction, not more. I mean, think of our global partners who left everything. Gospel partners that are living globally. Kent Hughes, if your Christianity has not brought discomfort to your life, something's wrong. A committed heart knows the discomfort of, a, of loving difficult people. Don't look around. The discomfort of giving until it hurts. The discomfort of putting oneself out for the ministry of Christ and the church. The discomfort of a life out of step with modern culture. The discomfort of being disliked. The occasional sense of having nowhere to lay your head. But Christ rewards far outvalue anything lost by following him, end quote. The next two men are both saying, I want you to follow. Look, look what it says. The next two are both saying to Jesus, I want to follow you, but first. Look what it says. 
first say, verse, um, verse 59, let me first go bury my father and then go down to 61, but first say farewell to those. This is first. And what, Jesus, what they're saying to Jesus is, listen, I, I got some things I got to do. I'll put you on the list. But my first priority is something else. Verse 59. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Jesus says, follow me. He says, let me first go and bury my father. Now, you may read that and go, yeah, that's a little cruel. I can, understand, I can see that. But let, let, me, let me clarify some context for you. He's not saying let your family be concerned about the funeral. You don't need to go and pay respect for your dad who's dead. That's not what he's saying. Actually, that would be probably a violation of the fifth commandment to honor mom and dad, right? In fact, ancient cultures, a proper burial was a major concern. But we also need to know culturally that the dead were buried on the same day that they died. So if the man's father had died, he would not be walking with Jesus in Samaria. Right? Once again, I think we need to know that Jesus knew his heart. And he knew that what he was saying is, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. What he's revealing is that there's something more important than following you. And I think the bottom line is that this son wants to delay devoting himself following, repenting of sin, walking with Jesus until his familial duties are behind him, making his commitment to his family above service and following and worshiping Jesus and the kingdom. Jesus recognizes man and his, and his family and the situation going on. It's just an excuse. It's an excuse. A delay, putting off. Maybe you're here and you have a million excuses. You've never really trusted Christ. You're playing the game, you're coming to church, but he's not first in your life. I mean, his dad may live another 30 years, <laughs> right? We say, you know, let me get this job. Let me marry this woman. Let me get this day. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. It's not so much about dishonoring parents. Louis says, let the dead bury the dead, verse 60. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. In other words, there are those that have not been born again on mission, following me, proclaiming the kingdom. Let the dead, the spiritually dead, bury, bury those that are dead. In other words, they have things to do, but look what it says. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What all of us need to be doing, sharing the message of the goodness and the reconciliation in Christ. And Luke is saying over and over and over again, we see it again here, the priority and the radical call of what a disciple is. In fact, in that culture, uh, from what I've read this week, son's duty of burial actually in the law, they would say if, you're, if you, you have to bury your father on the day in which he passed, you don't have to go to synagogue, you don't have to read your Bible, you don't even have to, uh, if it was Passover, you don't even have to uh, sacrifice. I mean, they, they made everything, you go and do that. I mean, that was a priority. And Jesus is saying, listen, the call to follow me, the demands of the kingdom, is the greatest priority of the most urgent, urgent, utmost urgent call. Should you honor your mom and dad? Absolutely. Absolutely. Should we serve and care for them as they get older, as I'm getting older, uh, as a way to show them honor? Absolutely. Should those things take priority over the call to follow Jesus? Absolutely not. And obviously there needs to be wisdom as you bring application to this text. But remember... When we get to Luke chapter 14, I know this is hyperbole and exaggeration, but the point is the point. 
Chapter Luke, chapter 14, verse 26. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, that's hyperbole. He's not saying go and do those things. It has to do with priority. The man's request shows, I got excuses. I'm not going to follow. Now, lastly... Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to my house. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. Again, another story of Elijah, 1 Kings 19. God tells Elijah, go find Elisha. He's going to be the next prophet. And when Elijah sees Elisha, he's plowing in the field. Elijah, I'm trying to get this right. Elijah, the prophet, takes his cloak off and throws it on Elisha. You're the next prophet. And Elisha turns to Elijah and says, I want to go home. I want to see my mom and dad. Right? I, I, I want to say my goodbye. And, and, then, and then I will follow you. And although it was granted, what happens next is the point of the narrative. Elisha, who was farming, plowing the fields, goes home, has, tells his family and friends, community, hey, I'm leaving, been called to ministry. Pray for me, got to go. And then the Bible says he burned his plow. <laughs> Slaughtered oxen, had a farewell feast for his family and friends. I'm not doing that no more. Jesus said no one puts his hands to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, putting your hands to the plow and looking back is different than burning your plow, but the point and the principle is the same. I'm not a farmer. I'll tell you that right now. They use machinery these days, but in those days, there was a plow, and you would plow the furrow straight, and you keep looking at some fixed point. You would not look back. If you look back, you would miss the, you know, you would, you'd be zigzagged by the time you were done. The principle is once Elijah burned his plow and slaughtered his oxen, he was done farming, man. He was not going back to do what he was doing, and Jesus is saying the same thing. If you plow and look back and have not understood the priority and the urgency of my call in the gospel... You're not fit to follow me. There'll be later time for goodbyes. Again, J.C. Ryle said something very smart. He said this, listen. Those who looked back want to go back. Remember Israelites? Brought out of slavery, bondage, in the wilderness, grumbling. Moses, you brought us out here to die. We had it so good, man. We had steak dinners. It was wonderful back in Egypt. Yeah, really. Slavery getting beaten. Is, you know, you, you have this fantasy of what it used to be. And Jesus says, you know what? You want to come? No going back. Turning from your old life, and, and now you need to, to walk in a new life following Jesus. We're not returning to old affections, old habits that do not honor God. Don't grab the plow and go and look back. I'm going to invite the band to come up. And I want to wrap this together. Now listen. Do you remember what I said at the beginning? I know it was a couple hours ago. But do you remember at the beginning of this passage? Where was Jesus' eyes set? Jerusalem. His face set like a flint, steadfast toward Jerusalem. Jesus didn't say, let's go to Jerusalem. Oh, wait a minute. 
Let's first go back to the ministry. No, you know what? Even better. Let's go back to the Mount of Transfiguration. Let's go hang out with Moses again and Elijah. That was really cool. No, the divine clock was ticking. He knew the cost. He knew the rejection, the suffering, the crucifixion, the resurrection. All was waiting for him in Jerusalem. Nothing could deter his appointed destination. He had given up his, the comforts of home, the, the glories of heaven, the claims of family. Single-minded, wholehearted devotion to the glory of God. Made it to Jerusalem, to the cross. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus wants to make it very clear what it means to follow him. What it involves to follow him. It, it, it is one whom the world does. He, he came and he was rejected. You see that in the scriptures. He's not one that was embraced but rejected. Even the sacred family responsibilities are secondary to our commitment to God. There must be a break, family, from old affections, attitudes and behaviors. Christ is calling us as the number one priority to follow him and to pray, proclaim his kingdom. Everything else in our life pales in comparison. And the road is not easy, but the road is filled with joy and glory. We ought to look ahead with the singular Dedication to the task and not look back. And family, listen to this. A great call demands a complete and unreserved response. A great call demands a complete and unreserved response. Following Jesus is worth it. Amen? He gave his life. He died in your place. He bore the wrath we deserve. Eternal life is yours Judgment has been poured out on him. Come and follow me. Let's pray. God, would we, as your people, see all that Christ has done on our behalf. That we would relish in his love, his grace, his mercy, and his kindness. God, may your love propel us to walk with you as our first priority, as the urgent call. And God, we pray. And all of us, are, and I'm sure I would say, that's not always the case, every moment. But God, at this time, at this morning, help us to see Jesus for who he is, that we would follow him in obedience to him because of his grace and because of his love and mercy toward us. And Father, help us by your spirit sing this song. Jesus is better. And may all the things of this earth pale in comparison for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.